When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Wanderers, today's episode is a little different. I'm taking a break from exploring Tolkien's The Hobbit and its movies and music to share with you my presentation from Fanex in Salt Lake City this year, 2023. Fanex is a comic convention that happens every year, and this year I presented the only panel focused on The Lord of the Rings. Please forgive the audio quality as my primary recording mic didn't capture anything. Yet I luckily had my iPhone recording as a backup, which did work. The audio was not so great, and also this was live, so without any editing, you'll get to hear me live and unscripted. Also, if you'd like to download the slides that I created and followed, you can find a copy at linktr.ee slash lotrpodcast, or use the link in the show notes. When this episode is over, please join me next week as we continue to wander through the music from The Hobbit films. Also, if you'd like more content like this, please reach out to me on social or email. You can use the link in the show notes and uh, let me know that you'd like to hear more content like this. Now, let's wander. All right, it's 1159, but I think we're okay to just go ahead and get started. My name is Aaron. Thank you for coming to Before Rings of Power. This is going to be a crash course on the first age of Middle-earth. Uh, and Rings of Power here is in reference to the Amazon show Rings of Power. We're going to be digging into that quite a bit today. But first off, I just want to say thank you for coming over here. This is sort of like, this is the only Lord of the Rings panel at Fanex this year. And last year there were only two Lord of the Ring panels at Fanex. So uh, am I alone in this room thinking that maybe Fanex needs to give Tolkien a little bit more love? Like just, just yes. All right. Thank you. I was a little bummed and actually really humiliated, or not humiliated, but humbled. At, uh, you know, I feel a little bit like Frodo with the one ring. I'm like, oh man, I, I have the one ring. I have the one panel. Like, don't screw this up, Frodo. Don't screw this up, Aaron. Uh, but yeah, so thank you for coming over here. I know this room is like off the beaten path. We're basically in the confines of Mordor over here. So thank you for making the trek um, all the way over here. And I appreciate it. So my name is Aaron. I'll be your host today. Um, and I'd just like to start out by saying um, as well, thank you, but also... Um, like Aragorn, not all those who wander are lost, so uh, I hope all of you are Middle-earth wanderers at heart, as am I, and so today we are going to wander and uh, not get lost. 
hopefully. But again, this is going to be a crash course, and we're going to dive in um, to all sorts of stuff, Lord of the Rings. But first off, I want to know a little bit about who you are. So go ahead and raise your hand if you've seen Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings or Hobbit films. Okay? If you've seen Amazon's Rings of Power Season 1. Okay, good, good. If you've read The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Okay? You've read The Silmarillion. Okay. Can you pronounce it correctly? All right. Okay. Good. Okay. You've read the similar. You've read the Silmarillion more than once. Okay. How many times? Twice. Twice. Three. Four. Five. Okay. I thought somebody would beat me. I think I'm at six or seven. Okay. All right. Six or seven. So the Silmarillion right here. This version just came out. Was this uh, earlier this year or last year? This has artwork by Tolkien himself. It's an absolute uh, beautiful version of the Silmarillion, uh, but it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, have you read any other works by Tolkien? The Great Tales, Unfinished, uh, unfinished Tales, Academic Writings? Okay, all right. You're my people. These are the, like the nerds of the nerds. So, okay. All right, awesome. Um, well, we need to talk about the Oliphant in the room. Um, and that is actually, uh, it is Amazon's Rings of Power. Okay, and uh, some of you might love it, and some of you might hate it, but whether you love it or you hate it, it's here, and it's in the, it's in the popular consciousness, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be around forever, it's always going to be out there, and uh, in actuality, Rings of Power is going to bring a lot of folks into the Tolkien Legendarium. For example, my boss has not read a word of Tolkien ever, he hasn't even seen the Peter Jackson movies, but he gave Rings of Power a try uh, for one or two episodes and then he dropped out like 67% of other people who started watching Rings of Power, but that's okay. But Rings of Power, it is now the Oliphant in the room and it's gonna be here forever. It's gonna bring a lot of people to the show and uh, we might as well just have to learn to deal with it. Those of us who hate it or love it, it's gonna be here, it's gonna be here um, um, forever. So a brief timeline of Middle-earth, and this will kind of serve as our agenda for today. Middle-earth can be broken up into sort of three or four major ages. You've got the first age, the second age, and the third age, as well as a little bit of the fourth age, and some creation time at the beginning uh, uh, before even the first age. And you can kind of see here, the first age is about 5,000 years, the second age is 3,300 years, the third age is another 3,000 years. So take just 10,000 years of recorded history, not even like the pre-time recorded history, 10,000 years of history that all came from J.R.R. Tolkien's mind. Now, when I think of that, I just think, wow, what a genius, what a master um, Tolkien was to have all of this in his mind. And obviously it wasn't all clear. He didn't have it all laid out. All the decisions weren't totally made. Uh, But there is a lot, a lot of history to Middle Earth. In fact, all of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, those take place right at that very last sliver of the Green Age, right? So that green bar right there, or excuse me, the Third Age, that green bar, the last 60 years, that's when the One Ring is found, that's when Frodo has his journey, and Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, you know, run across Rohan. All of that is happening right there, the last sliver um, of the Third Age. So what happens in the Second Age and the First Age and even before? Well, Amazon uh, tried to take on that question of, hey, let's, uh, let's look at the second age of Middle-earth. And they decided they were going to take 3,300 years of history and try to condense that into just a couple of years, like maybe five seasons worth of, of content, um, which, in my opinion, is probably fatal flaw number one for Rings of Power, was trying to take 3,300 years and, and squash that into uh, just a couple of, couple of ep- seasons. Um, but for today's wandering, we're going to be focusing, focusing mostly on the first age of Middle-earth. We'll dabble just a little bit into the creation, how it all started, 
and we'll also bleed a little bit into the second age of Middle Earth. But my goal today is for you, when you go back and you watch Rings of Power, to deepen that, that watching experience, that you know just a little bit more of the lore, a little bit more of the backstory, of the history, so that as you're watching that, and even as you go and watch Peter Jackson's films again, that you'll know uh, just, a, just a little bit more. So let's start at the very beginning. So the creation of Arda. Now Arda was Tolkien's elvish word for the word for the world, the word world. Tolkien called it Arda. And it all began with Iluvatar, Eru Iluvatar. So Eru Iluvatar existed before time began. He was the very first thing out there. He is the one, he is the creator God. Now he created, a, his first creation was a group of spiritual beings. These are called the Ainur. Now these spiritual beings, the Ainur, they begin to sing the song or the theme of Iluvatar. And as they're singing this theme of Iluvatar, the world comes into existence. Not quite fully, but it begins to form. And this is one of the reasons why songs are all throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and the books and the film, because the nature of the world and its basic component isn't just physical, it's musical. And it all started from Eru Aluvatar and the Ainur. So as some of the Ainur are looking at this creation that they're starting to sing about, they're starting to see a form, and they decide, we want to go down there, and we want to help make that a good place for the children of Aluvatar who are about to come down. Now, the children of Aluvatar are the firstborn, the elves, and the secondborn mortal men. Those are the children of Luvatar. So these Ainur who come down into the world, they take physical form. Those are known as the Valar. Okay, there is going to be a quiz after this, by the way, so I hope you're taking notes. Okay, so the Valar come down, and they start to form this world. Now, you can see in this, uh, this artwork of the Ayolindole, that is the theme that, makes, that created the music, there's one of the Ainur who is not particularly excited. He becomes a little bit rebellious. He starts weaving into the theme of Iluvatar his own themes and his own music. And he starts to enter, uh, he starts to introduce a little bit of rebellion and a little bit of pride and a little bit of selfishness uh, into the themes of Iluvatar. Well, this particular uh, member of the Ainur, he also comes down into Arda. And at first he is called Melkor. And he is the great foe, he is the great villain. He is the big baddie uh, of Middle-earth and of the world. Now, along with the Valar, some others of the Ainur came down as well. They weren't quite as powerful as the Valar. They are a group of spiritual beings called the Maiar. Okay, you probably know a handful of Maiar by name. Ever heard of Gandalf? Uh-huh, okay. Saruman? Sauron? Okay, all of the wizards are part of that spiritual class of beings called the Maiar. Um, also, Ents and Eagles... Uh, all of those guys, part, uh, part, of, the, part of the Maiar. Um, so there you go. That's the creation of Arda. Now, the Valinor, but when the Valar come down into the world, they sort of create for themselves a place, and it's far out into the west of the world, and it's a land called Valinor. Now, they have a couple of different light sources that they create. They raise up a couple of lamps. Melkor throws them down. Uh, but after that, the Valar create what's known as the Two Trees of Valinor. Now, these trees, I have, I have some podcast friends, and they, they recommend if you want to know what's going on in Tolkien's world, you have to follow the trees. And I, and I, yeah, that's absolutely true. But I would say a little bit more specifically, you have to follow the light of the two trees. So these two trees, the silver one is named uh, Telperion. He's the silver tree. He's the elder tree. The golden one is Laurelin, the golden tree. And these two trees are created by the Valar. And as their light kind of waxes and wanes in, in harmony with one another, that sort of kind of creates a, a day for the Valar over in Valinor. 
Now, these trees, they actually, their fruit is light. They are basically just producing this divine light, silver light and golden light. Now, remember, the only light source other than these trees, there's no moon, there's no sun, there's only stars out there, um, if you can see them, but these really are the only light source uh, uh, of Middle Earth. Now, the Valar know that the children of Iluvatar, again, firstborn elves, secondborn men, they know that they're going to wake somewhere at some time, but they don't know exactly when and they don't know exactly where. But eventually, one of the Valar, uh, he finds the elves. They've awoken up in a land called Quivienen. Okay? Quivienen is way far out in the east. It's far away from where the Valar are and Valinor in the west. And so, of course, for you guys, east and west is probably backwards. But for me, it's east is over there, west is over there. So, inverted brains. Thanks. So the Valar find the elves all the way out there in the east, in the darkness. And the very first thing that they see as their eyes open is they see the light of the stars. That silver, pale light of the stars. Okay, and so from the very, very beginning, the light of the stars takes a special place in the hearts of the elves. So you can start to see that in The Hobbit, in The Lord of the Rings, in the films and in the books, that the light of the stars, the elves almost worship it uh, because it, it is a divine thing for them. It's one of the very first things that entered into their consciousness. Um, well, the Valar decide, you know, Melkor is out there. He's, he's running the town out there in this dark world um, of Middle Earth. So the Valar say, hey, elves, how about you come and you join us in Valinor where you can dwell within the light of the two trees? Right? So you don't have to be there in darkness. You don't have to be subject to Melkor. You can come over here, not be our servants or our slaves, nothing like that, but just come and enjoy the light of the two trees with us. So what happens uh, after those elves awaken and the Valinor invite them is the great march to Valinor and the sundering of the elves. Now, those of you who've read The Silmarillion more than once, okay, my, my nerds of the nerds, okay, you're my crew, you dig, you dig charts like this, right, where you can see all the different houses of the elves, and it's great. For those of you who are like, man, I just saw the movies, and this is kind of really crazy, that's okay, that's fine. Basically, the two big divisions that you need to worry about are there are elves who stayed in Quivienen and never started the journey, whereas there are a, another group of elves who started the journey to come to Valinor. Okay, of all of those elves who started the journey, uh, we call those the Eldar. And uh, there's a couple notable names up there. Yeah, th if you follow that yellow arrow, you'll see that there's Thranduil. Okay, Thranduil and Mirkwood, that's Legolas' father. He is of a group of elves who started on that journey, but they never actually made it. Okay, so he stayed in Middle-earth. They got stuck there. Um, if you follow that blue arrow, you'll find Círdan. Círdan is the shipwright who lives on the coast of Middle-earth. So he made it farther than Threadwheel's group, but he actually stayed right there on the coast of, of Middle-earth. Círdan is actually the oldest elf in Middle-earth, which is pretty cool. Um, but if you follow that red arrow, the Noldor, the Noldor are one of the three groups that actually made it all the way to Valinor. And as we'll get to in just a second, some of the Noldor came back to Middle-earth. So most of the elves that you see in The Hobbit, actually not in The Hobbit, but in Lord of the Rings, most of those are Noldor elves, okay? Elrond, Galadriel, those, they fall under the category of Noldor elves. elves. So the Noldor came all the way on the journey to Middle-earth. They came to Valinor, and they dwelt amongst the light of the two trees of Middle-earth. And we'll get to this in just a second, but they, they all come back to, uh, to Middle-earth. So, who was Feanor? Okay, so Feanor is one of the Noldor, and if you've seen Rings of Power, Feanor's name sort of gets kicked around quite a bit. In fact, he's got this awesome hammer there that Elrond is like totally like, whoa, dude, this is like so cool. It's the hammer of, of uh, Feanor. And Killebrimbor, he's like, man, I just wish I was so cool as Feanor. So Feanor uh, is a member of the Noldor elves. In fact, he's like kind of one of their principal, he's one of their lead sort of rulers and leaders and kings. Um, and he is related to quite a few other people that you probably know. So Feanor is actually the grandfather of Celebrimbor, the crafter of the Rings of Power. 
Um, but Feanor also has a half-brother named Finarfin. Finarfin has several children, two of which are Galadriel and Finrod. If you've seen Amazon Rings of Power, you know who Finrod is. Um, his story is a little bit different, but that's okay. We'll get to that. Uh, but Galadriel and Finrod um, are both siblings, and, and they are part of the Noldor that do come back, come back to Middle-earth. But it is interesting to know that Feanor and Galadriel um, have sort of an uncle-niece relationship. Well, Feanor is looking at the light of these two trees, um, and he thinks, wow, the light of those two trees, that's something beautiful, it's something divine. What can I do with that? What can, what can I craft with that? The Noldor and Feanor especially were craftspeople. They wanted to create, they wanted to build, they wanted to make something new of their own hands. Uh, they didn't just want to accept what was there, but they wanted to create more. And he sees the light of the two trees, and he thinks it's just beautiful, it's divine. And Galadriel, as is said in Unfinished Tales, her hair is sort of described as somehow having the light of both the trees, the silver tree and the golden tree, enmeshed in the color of her hair. It was sort of silver and gold at the same time. So Feanor actually asks Galadriel and says, hey, can I have three strands of your hair so that I can encase them in crystal? Um, and Galadriel, kind of seeing that Feanor had a little bit of pride in him and uh, was a little bit selfish and was a little bit rebellious, she said, no, you cannot have three hairs from my head to encase in crystal. Um, which is really interesting that later on she would give three hairs from her head to a dwarf who elves and dwarves don't actually like. And what does Skimli say he's going to do? He's going to encase her hairs in crystals. Kind of a little interesting, interesting story there. But Feanor, after he's rejected by Galadriel, he says, okay, fine, I'm going to make the Silmarils. So he makes three beautiful jewels. And within these jewels, he takes the light from Telperion, the silver light from Telperion, the golden light from Laurelin, and he combines them, he melds them. And, and blends them together in these three particular jewels. Now, what is the actual substance of these jewels? We don't really know. Um, Tolkien says it's somewhat like crystal. It can't be dented. It can't be destroyed. Um, and Feanor kind of takes those secrets of how he created these Silmarils, and uh, he, he doesn't really share them. And in fact, these Silmarils are so beautiful and so powerful and so divine that sort of everybody around, elves, Valar, everybody sort of looks at these jewels and they're like, wow, that, that is something amazing. That is something really, really beautiful. And the Valar actually, they bless these jewels. They become sort of divine. And they actually start to begin to take on a little bit of a will of their own, have a life of their own, which is another interesting theme if you look at Tolkien, that sometimes things crafted by, the, uh, by people in Middle-earth can take a will of their own, right? The Silmarils or the One Ring or there's other things as well. Uh, but Feanor makes these Silmarils, and they become really beautiful. But he doesn't want to share the light with everyone. And he's a little bit selfish of this light that he thinks he has created in the Silmarils, and he locks them away. Um, and he, and uh, he, he rarely brings them out anymore. He locks them away into his palace. Well, eventually Melkor comes knocking around Valinor. He teams up with a giant spider monster named Ungoliant. And together, he and Ungoliant, they attack the two trees of Valinor, and they destroy them. They kill them. Ungoliant sucks up all of the light, and she becomes really powerful. If you've seen Rings of Power, this is a shot from the prologue of the, of the first episode. You can kind of see as, as the trees die into darkness, Melkor's sort of shadow kind of grows there in the background. And the whole world, again, plunges back into darkness. The light of the trees is gone. The only light source, again, are those faraway stars. And there's sort of confusion in Valinor. In the midst of the confusion of the darkness, Mor uh, Morgoth, excuse me, Melkor, runs all the way to Feanor's palace, and he steals the three Silmarils um, out of Feanor's palace. Well, when Feanor figures this out, he says, I'm going to name that guy a new name, right? Because it's Tolkien. You can't have more than just one name. I mean, J-R-R -R, Tolkien. I mean, it's right there. Uh, so... 
Feanor says, well, he's no longer named uh, Melkor. I'm going to name him Morgoth, which means the great foe. That's Elvish for the great foe. So from then on, he's known as Morgoth. I probably slipped up a couple of times already, interchangeable. But Melkor, Morgoth, big bad guy, the great foe. Well, as the Valar see the light of the two trees is gone, it's in darkness, they try to revive the two trees, but they're unable to. Uh, it's just they're dead. But they are able to find from Telperion, I think it's like a leaf, one small silver leaf. From Laurelin, they find one small golden fruit, and it is from the silver leaf and the golden fruit of these two trees that they then, that they then fashion vessels that can fly in the sky, and those become the moon and the sun. So it, as you're watching Amazon Rings of Power and Celebrimbor's like, well, the sun started from something no smaller than the, no bigger than the palm of my hand. He's referring there back to Laurelin the golden and that very last fruit that the Valar were able to salvage from that golden tree and thus, and thus create the sun. Well, Feanor and some of the Noldor, they decide we're going to go back to Middle-earth and we're going to reclaim our Silmarils. So they go to their friends, who are not Noldor, but to Larry Elves, and they say, hey, we need to borrow some of your ships, your white swan ships. Uh, and the Teleri say, no, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. Those ships, to us, are what the Silmarils are to you, Noldor. Well, Feanor and his seven sons, um, they're a little bit of hotheads. They don't like this, and so they begin to slay the Teleri. So, as you've seen, yeah, some of you are like, what? Yeah, you watch Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and elves are always on the same side of elves. But uh, in the very beginning of the first age of Middle-earth, there was a bit of a civil war. This is called the Kinslaying at Aqualonde, um, where Feanor and his followers of the Noldor actually slay some of these elves. They steal the ships, they go across, and they're back in Middle-earth, and uh, they, they, uh, they're going to burn the ships. We're not going back. We're not going back to Valinor. They burn all of the ships. So you can see Feanor, his sons, his followers. These are not good guys. These are not Peter Jackson's very noble elves. Um, he's a bit of a hothead. He's rebellious. Well, there are other Noldor elves, namely Galadriel and Finrod, who also want to come back to Middle-earth. They actually do not participate in this kinslaying, and all the ships are gone. So they have to travel all the way around to the north side through the icy passages in the north. Um, and when they come back to Middle-earth, I think the phrase in the Silmarillion says something along the lines of, like, little love in their hearts do they have for Feanor and his sons, right? Because they have to do that crazy um, journey through the north. Well, what happens for the rest of the First Age is essentially called the War of the Jewels. This is where the Noldor elves and eventually the men who wake up, they come and they ally themselves with the elves. There's a, a number of different battles there that happen. Um, but if you see in Dagor Aglareb, right there in that middle battle, um, it's called the Siege of Angband. What the Noldor are able to do with, their, with some of their allies that they find in Middle-earth, they sort of create this, this, uh, this line of defense, and they fence in Morgoth there at the top uh, in the north. Um, but they're still, out of all of these battles, they're still unable to reclaim even one of the three Silmarils that Morgoth stole. Um, but eventually, you've got uh, the Dagger Bragalach, the Battle of Sudden Flame. Morgoth, is, uh, he takes the victory here. He's built up a whole bunch of lava. He sent that out over the flames. A lot of the elven defenses get burned, and he sent out dragons, so you get a lot of fire. And in fact, if you've seen the prologue of episode one of, of uh, Rings of Power, there's a shot where it looks like there's some elves that are um, underwater, and there's some buildings that are on fire. I think that's inspired. Um, this is my guess. That's inspired by the Dagger Bragalach, okay, the Battle of Sudden Flame. Um, but eventually, at the end of the First Age, you have the War of the Wrath, where one uh, individual is able to go back to Valinor and convince the Valar that still live there, hey, we need help, we cannot defeat Morgoth on our own, come back over here uh, and, and help us out. And it is only when the Valar intervene and Morgoth is defeated that is uh, the end of the First Age. 
So uh, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into this, there are three books. These are called The Three Great Tales, Baron and Luthien, The Children of Hurin, and The Fall of Gondolin. These three tales all take place during those battles of the First Age, and these are actually the very beginning of Tolkien's Legendarium. These tales and some of the drafts that he wrote date all the way back to World War I, um, where he's sitting in the trenches and even recovering after the Battle of the Somme. Um, these were the very beginnings. Before there were hobbits, before there was Frodo, before there was a One Ring, uh, before even a Galadriel. These were the three stories that, uh, that generated everything for Tolkien. They're called the Great Tales. And uh, we'll dig a little bit into one of these, Baron and Luthien, in just a second. Um, but the children of Hurin, Hurin was a mortal man. And uh, this tale is a great, great tragedy. So if you're a sucker for Shakespearean or Greek tragedies, I am not. Go and check out the children of Hurin because it, uh, it will make you just aggravated and sad. And, and uh, he's just a great hero who makes tons of mistakes and uh, lots of deception. The Fall of Gondolin. Okay, if you're a very keen ear reader, The Fall of Gondolin, and you know a little bit about Elrond, okay, in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he says, uh, or in The Hobbit, I guess when Gandalf and Thorin come and they bring their swords that they got from the troll horde, and they're in there in Rivendell, and Elrond says, oh, these were forged in Gondolin, okay, by my ancestors in the first age of Middle-earth. So Gondolin is this refuge, it's an elven city, it's ringed around by mountains, it's very hidden. Um, the eagles keep make, make sure that nobody, no, no evil people find out where a gondolin is. And it is sort of this last bastion of elven strength against Morgoth uh, in the first stage. And so when the fall of gondolin happens, that is just when everything is absolutely desperate and there is, there is no more hope. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But Baron and Luthien, let's talk a little bit about Baron and Luthien. If you know a little bit of Tolkien lore um, and on, on Tolkien and his, his wife's tombstone, his wife's name is Edith, on their tombstone, they also have two other words, two other names. On Tolkien's, it says Baron, and on his wife's, it says Luthien. So Baron and Luthien is a wonderful love story. Baron is a mortal man who falls in love with the elf maiden Luthien. Now, of course, elves are, are immortal. So Baron goes to uh, Be- uh, Luthien's father and says, hey, I'd like to have her hand in marriage. And he being an elf says, no way, that's not going to happen. Um, you're a mortal man. She's, she's an elf. So he thinks he comes up with this really clever thing. And he says, okay, if you can come before me with one of the Silmarils in your hand, just one, then you can, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. So then Baron goes out on this great um, tale, this great task. And he says, okay, I'm going to go get uh, one of those Silmarils. And uh, he has a ring given to him. And this ring came from his father. This ring uh, came to him from his father. His father saved an elf. That particular elf's name was Finrod. Okay, okay. We're starting to make some connections. We're coming back. We're circling back around. Okay. So his father helped Finrod. Finrod said, if you or any of your kin ever need help, come to me. So Baron goes to Finrod, Galadriel's brother, and says, hey, I got to go reclaim one of these Silmarils. And Finrod says, okay, I guess guess this is what we're going to do. So Finrod and Baron and a couple of companions, they disguise themselves as orcs. And they start traveling north to Angband to try to reclaim one of the Silmarils. And as they're traveling north, they pass a tower um, that is controlled by Sauron. 
Okay, so Sauron was there in the first age of Middle Earth. He's doing all sorts of bad things for Melkor slash Morkoth. Okay, Sauron, he's sort of a lieutenant. He's not the big baddie yet. But he controls this particular tower. And his standing instructions are, anybody who's going north, they have to come report to me what they've been doing, what they've been seeing. Okay, so like, not only is Sauron a great jeweler, he's a great bureaucrat. Okay, he's a great politician. Yeah, come, come give me all the inside information. But he sees this little company of orcs going north, and he's like, hey, they haven't come talk to me. And he sends out his people, they bring him in, and he can start to see, okay, something is not right here. And so what happens between Sauron and Finrod is the very first battle of the bands in Middle-earth. Okay, now remember again, the nature of Middle-earth is music. It all started out with music and with song. So Sauron starts to sing this song of power, like, reveal your secrets to me. Uh, no more deception. I need to know what's going on. Well, Finrod is disguised as an orf with a little bit of magic, and he starts to seek a pow- uh, song of, excuse me, no, uh, we're going to keep our secrets, like strong towers, as you can see in the background of this art, strong towers and chains that, that can protect us and keep us strong. Um, but eventually, Sauron also starts to sing of the kin slaying at Aqualonde, the elf slaying elf, a little bit of civil war. And even though Finrod was not a participant in that battle, he still feels guilt and shame for what his kin had done at that particular battle. And so because of that, his song breaks. Sauron is able to find out, okay, so you are Finrod, the elf, but I'm still not able to figure out everything that's going on. I'm going to throw you in my dungeons. So Sauron throws him in the dungeons of the tower. And uh, every day he sends in one of his wolves and they carry one of their companions away and they kill him and they eat him so that everybody else in the dungeon can hear. And his whole thing is, I'm going to break you until you tell me what's actually going on, what your purpose is. Well, one by one, all of their companions die until only Finrod and Baron are left. Um, and so the wolf comes to eat Baron, the mortal man, and Finrod stands up and says, no, we're done. This is the last. And so in that last battle, um, Finrod uh, actually kills the wolf, but he dies in that last battle with the wolf. So that's why you see, when you see Finrod's body and uh, his dead body and Gladrill's mourning over it, there are some slash marks, almost as if a wolf had been slashing at him. Um, again, inspired here by the story here in the Silmarillion. Well, Baron is left in the dungeons of Sauron's tower, uh, but good thing he's got a powerful girlfriend named Luthien, and she is very powerful in and of herself, has lots of magic. She teams up with a great hound called Juan, and together Juan and Luthien, they take down Sauron, and they defeat him. Uh, Elf maiden plus dog defeats Sauron. It's great. And there's this awesome great line as, like, Sauron's pinned down on the ground, and Luthien's like, you will relinquish power, power over this tower to me? Or I'm going to send you back to your master, formless and naked, so you can stand in shame in his presence. I mean, wow, dude. <laughs> Don't mess with Luthien, right? And also, Luthien is like great-great-grandmother to Elrond. So when Elrond like, turns to Gandalf and says, men, men are weak, he's probably thinking like, yeah, look at what my grandma did. Luthien, dude, she totally defeated Sauron. Okay? But uh, eventually, she finds Baron down there in the dungeons of, of the tower. She's singing. She sort of revives him, brings him back to life. I really love this image here on the right of Luffy and Finding Baron in the Dungeons uh, of Sauron. This, this painting is by Kip Rasmussen, and he actually has a booth out there on the floor on row 400. I think it's called Tolkien Illustration. Um, go check out his stuff. He's got beautiful illustrations inspired by Tolkien and, and the Silmarillion, so it's absolutely wonderful. Um, Okay, so the first age ends, and we're going to get to that a little bit, but in the yellow box, you can see there's Baron and Luthien. They kind of, they are able to get together. Oh, whoa, hold on. I totally forgot the end of the story. Okay, so Luthien and Baron, they go up, and through a lot of, uh, a little bit of luck and some clever deceptions, they are able to take one of the Silmarils, and they come back down, although a, a wolf bites off Baron's hand as he's holding a Silmaril, so he goes to her father and says, well, there's a Silmaril in my hand. 
but it's in a wolf's stomach. So then there's a great hunt. And they, anyway, so they reclaim one of the Silmarils. Baron and Luthien then possess um, that particular Silmaril. And there's a whole lot of stories there. So Baron and Luthien have one Silmaril. Morgoth still has two. And yet he is still able to defeat um, all of the elves and take out all of their last um, sanctuaries. There in the blue box, there's Hurin and Turin um, and some of the great tragedies that happen there. But this is the red box. This is where we need to focus on. Remember the fall of Gondolin. So this little red arrow is pointing to Eärendil. Eärendil was born in Gondolin, and you probably have not heard the name Eärendil, but you probably know his son a lot more. His son is named anyone? Elrond. Elrond. Okay, good crew. All right. Okay. So Eärendil's son is Elrond, but his parents are Tuord and Idril. Now it's interesting to note Tuor is a mortal man. Idril is a, an immortal elf. And so as the Valar are sort of watching what's going on in Middle-earth, they kind of come to this point of, well, there's only one person who could, like, come, and they have to be, like, a representative of both the elves and the men, and that'll never going to happen. So, gee, a lot of thanks, Val- Val- Valar, over there. Um, but Eärendil, he takes it upon himself. He's a great mariner. He's a great adventurer. And he says, we need help. Morgoth has destroyed everything. We are killing ourselves. Nothing is – we need help, divine help from the Valar. So he takes his ship. He sails out into the west. He somehow makes it through the divine, uh, divine defenses that the Valar have sort of set up. And he gets to Valinor and he says, Valar, we need your help. Uh, and with that, because he is actually representative of both elves and men, because of the nature of both his father and his mother, the Valar decide, yes, okay, we will come intervene. They bring back uh, all of the Valar, all of the Maiar that are still there, and some of the elves that are still there in Valinor. They come back, they defeat all of Morgoth's forces, and they shove Morgoth out into the void. And uh, everything's happy, right? Oh, no, not that no, everything's happy in Lord of the Rings, so that's okay. But they also look at Aedindil, and they say, uh, hold on a second, um, you're a mortal man, and you just came into the immortal blessed realm of Valinor, and uh, we can't have that happening, because we don't want all the mortal men coming over here trying to live in an immortal land. That's just, the nature thing doesn't, doesn't really work there. Um, and so they're about to judge him and exile him, but then uh, they kind of stand up and they realize, okay, wait, but you have also elvish blood in you, and so what we're going to do is we're going to let you decide, Aedindil, you get to decide. Are you, going to be in, are you going to inherit the gifts of men, which include death, or are you going to inherit the gifts of the elven side, which includes immortality? Aedindil and his wife uh, Elwing, they choose to become uh, elves, and so... Um, We'll get a little bit more into that in just a second, but that choice is also given to their two sons, Elrond and Elros, and in some cases, even Elrond's children also get to choose if they will be elves or men. Hmm? Aragorn and Arwen, okay, keep that in your mind, just a second. Okay, so what happened to the Silmarils? Well, according to Amazon Rings of Power, one of them was stuck up in a tree, and there's an elf and a Balrog fighting over it, and then lightning strikes, and boom, Mithril, and that saves all the elves. Um, oh, boy, okay. Sorry. No, no. Like, I've read this many, many times. Uh, I've read a lot of other writings. And granted, I haven't read all of the history of Middle Earth. I mean, 12 books is a little bit thick. Uh, but uh, I have no idea where it came up with this particular story um, on how one of the Silmarils ended up in a tree. So where did they actually end up? Okay, well, the one Silmaril that was reclaimed by Baron and Luthien, that gets eventually handed down to Eärendil. He's over there on the right-hand side. Um, the Valar sort of craft for him a ship, and this Silmaril gets fastened to his, his brow, and he and his wife, they go up and they sail in the sky, and Eärendil becomes the morning and the evening star. You thought it was Venus. I'm sorry to actually tell you that it is Eärendil up there, and that it's one of the Silmarils, which contains the light of the two trees of Valinor. So 
you know, tell your science teacher he needs to go talk to the English teachers. Um, so one of the Silmarils ends up there in the air. But the other two uh, are sort of given, handed to the last two remaining sons of Feanor. Feanor died in the battles of the First Age. He had seven sons, all of which died, except for these last two. Uh, Mayadros has one of the Silmarils. And uh, if you remember before, now I've thrown a lot at you, but, uh, but the Silmarils were hollowed and blessed. And one of those things is that if anyone who the Silmarils consider evil try to touch them, it will burn their hand. Well, Mayadros has a lot of elven blood, a lot of kin blood on his hands. And so the Silmarils say, uh, we're, not, uh, we're not going to allow you to touch us. Um, and it sort of starts driving him crazy. His hand is burning. And he ends up with the Silmaril in his hand. He throws himself into a fiery chasm. Not a recommended way to go. Um, Maglor, his brother, also receives a Silmaril. And same thing. The Silmaril is sort of burning his hand. But his solution instead, he is going to toss it into the absolute deepest sea and completely lose it. And can't find it anymore. And so the legend is that he wanders the shores of the world um, singing and lamenting and singing these morning songs of the Silmaril and what it cost him and that he lost it and all of the great battles and tragedies that happened as they tried to reclaim those Silmarils. So just to reiterate, those three Silmarils, one ended in fire, one ended in water, and one ended in air. Okay, remember that. We'll get to that in just a second. But a little bit more about Eärendil and his sons. So you've seen this tapestry from the Rings of Power. Uh, here on the right is, is uh, Elrond. He does choose to inherit the gifts of, of Elvendom, and he receives that, uh, that sort of title of, of half-elven. Um, and uh, the, I think in, if you watch very carefully, there's some digs sometimes about Elrond not being full elf in Rings of Power, like Elf Lord's only Elrond, you know? He's like, oh, man, okay. Um, lowly, lowly speech writer for the president. Um, but Elrond takes that choice. His brother, Elros, chooses to inherit the gifts of men. And even though that includes death, he is blessed with a longer life. And so Elros takes um, his people, the faithful men who helped the elves in all the first age, and they are given the island kingdom of Numenor. This is that, that star-shaped island out there in the sea, basically in the middle, but a little bit closer to Valinor. And during the whole second age, Numenor becomes this great kingdom of men. It's intended to be a paradise. It's a gift for them. And as, as payback for their faithful service to the elves during the first age um, of, of Middle-earth. However, all good things come to an end, and spoiler alert, Numenor will eventually fall, uh, and there's a great book that just came out, I think, just a couple of months ago, um, by Brian Sibley, edited by Brian Sibley, that's called The Fall of Numenor. This is a great book because before this book, if you wanted to read about the second age of Middle-earth, you'd get a little bit in the appendices of Lord of the Rings, you'd get a little bit in Silmarillion, you'd get a little bit in Unfinished Tales, and it was just sort of scattered and all over and not chronological. So what Brian Sibley did is he took all of those different sources and he put them in chronological order and he kind of said, okay, if you want to get a good view of what's happening during the second age of Middle Earth, and again, that's when Amazon Springs of Power is taking place, um, you go and you read the fall of Numenor. Um, and so basically, Numenor is the second age of Middle Earth uh, and, and uh, it and its rising is kind of when the second age begins, and kind of when it falls is more or less um, when the, that second age ends. Okay, so let's talk slightly about the purpose of the three rings of power. Now, if you watch Amazon Rings of Power, the elves are getting sick, okay? And uh, they're getting sick because, you know, they're getting sick. Um, and their tree has a lot of blackness on them, and the only thing that will save them is, you know, we, we, we don't know, we're just getting sick. Again, uh, I, I don't know. It's like they took Peter, Peter Jackson sort of introduced this idea with Arwen, right, in the movies of like, oh, the night of the Eldar is fading you. You know, we have to, your hands are cold. Um, 
Yeah, it's like Amazon took that little concept in Peter Jackson's movie, which is okay, a little arguable, and they like magnified it towards a thousand. They're like, all the elves are going to die unless you have Mithril, okay? And so it's like all of a sudden, wow, that Mithril shirt that like Bilbo and Frodo have, like, wow, why didn't the elves just take that? And then boom, everybody's saved. Um, but no, that is not the purpose of the three rings of power to save all the elves. Um, but uh, this comes from Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring. Those who made them, th- that is the three rings of power, those who made them did not desire strength or domination or hoarded wealth, but understanding, making, and healing to preserve all things unstained. Now notice what Elrond says there is not the purpose of the three rings of power. He says not to get strength, domination, or hoarded wealth. Well, if you think of, well, who else received rings of power in the Legendarium? Okay, well, you have men who always wanted the strength to overcome death. That's like our critical flaw, right? Who wants to die? We don't want to die. We want the strength to overcome death. You look at dwarves who also receive seven rings of power. What do they want at their very core, their very nature? They want hoarded wealth. Absolutely. They want their gold, right? Um, Who wants domination over all things? Sauron, okay? Sauron wants domination. So it's, it's interesting where Elrond is looking at all of the rings of power and he has retrospect and he can say, no, the three rings were not there. Like, yeah, it was natural to give them to the elves or to the men and natural to give them to the dwarves. And yes, Sauron made his one. They wanted strength, domination, and wealth. But what did the elves want? They want understanding. They want making. They want healing. They want to preserve all things unstained. In other words, the elves in Middle-earth, they are trying to recreate as much as they can the home that they had in Valinor, under the light of the two trees. That was the purpose of the three rings of power that were given to the elves. Those three rings are called Nar- Narnia, Nenya, and Vilya. Uh, and Círdan and Gandalf are the keeper of Narnia. Uh, the keeper of Nenya is Galadriel. She is the only keeper of that ring. The ring at Vilya is, first it has Gilgalad. Gilgalad also in rings of power. He's the high king of the Noldor. Huh? We're coming back to the Noldor. Sun ring of the elves. It all connects. Okay, uh, but eventually Gilgalad is going to die, but before he dies, with some gift of foresight, he gives it to Elrond. Interesting that Elrond becomes the keeper of the Ring of Air, seeing as how his father holds the Silmaril that is also flying in the air. And remember the fate of those other two Silmarils? One ended in fire, and one ended in water. So you see there's some connection there. As the elves are crafting these Rings of Power, Celebrimbor, he knows his history, right? And he's trying to say, I want to be as good as Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor created these great Rings of Power, and he knows where they ended up, and so he's able to bring back um, a little bit of that Silmarillion lore, Silmaril lore, uh, into the Three Rings of Power. Well, thank you for wandering Middle-earth with me today. That is uh, a crash course in the first, first age of Middle-earth. If your heads are spinning, sweet! That's awesome! Because we just covered like 6,000 years of history and then some. Um, but if you'd like to go a little bit deeper, I do host the podcast Lore of the Rings. Uh, we do 15-minute uh, episodes every Thursday, and so like this is a bit of a fire hose, so I try to condense it down into 15 minutes for you. Um, you can go ahead and, and uh, check out that website or scan that code. Um, but I just want to say thank you for wandering Middle Earth with me today. And uh, if there are any questions, let's hear it. But that's all for today. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. Oh, um, I wondered how you felt about the treatment of, uh, in uh, the Amazon Prime, the Rings of Power. Um, it seems like there is this, uh, and, and sorry, this is 
super nerdy. But uh, that's what we're here for. Uh, the gateway of Valinor in yeah. The gateway in the beginning uh, in uh, the first age, it was it was a physical place that you could sail mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. But later, when when the Valara intervenes, they they sort of took it off the map. Yeah, the road gets bent. It's no longer straight. Yeah, right. Valinor and, sort of is removed. But it seems like the consistency of that is not clear when yeah. when they're all on the boat and they sing the song and then the veil opens. I'm like, can't you just sail there at this point? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not understanding that. Yeah, absolutely. So the question is sort of that gateway to Valinor as the elves uh, and Galadriel on that boat as they're trying to get back to Valinor. After the first stage, the Valar did sort of remove Valinor from the earth and the kind of the road became bent, so it was hard to get there. Um, but there are some descriptions. I mean, Gandalf talks about like a silver curtain being rolled back. And so I think physically it's probably there. Um, and so it's like, there's not a whole lot of detail there. So sure, we can, we can open that up to interpretation in some wiggle room, but uh, having Galadriel jump off a boat in the middle of the ocean and just happen to end up with Sauron, I think mm, that's a little bit of a stretch for a plot point, but yeah, please. Hello? Oh, it is on. Um, just wanted to make sure I was remembering correctly. Um, the light of the star glass Frodo has, that is Arendelle, right? Yes, our most beloved star, yeah. Okay, just wanted to make sure I was remembering correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. So Galadriel, the question is, Galadriel brings, uh, she gives Frodo a little vial of sort of liquid light. She says, this is the light of Arendelle, our most beloved star. Yeah, she is referencing that one Silmaril that is floating up there in the sky, and that light, again, follow the trees, follow the light of the trees, that light is just a small snippet of the divine light of the two trees of Valinor. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Great. Uh, yes, right here. Uh, if someone wanted to read more about the first age specifically, yes. what books would you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say the three great tales. Three great tales. Yeah, three great tales. And after you're done with that, then you can take on this beast, uh, the Silmarillion. But I would recommend uh, the Silmarillion requires more than one read. Okay, so the first time you read the Silmarillion, don't try to get everything, all the details, like just kind of get high level view. The second time, you can start to kind of follow some of the characters. The third time, it'll make sense. The fourth time, you'll feel like you're coming home. The fifth time, we can make a podcast. <laughs> uh, right here at the mic and then over there. I, I, I'm a big, Silmarillion is actually my favorite book. Of yeah, mine too. Yeah. Um, I've described it to my friends as the Bible of Middle-earth. Yes. So it's like <laughs> um, my question is a hypothetical for the Rings of Power uh, you know, in future seasons. Um, there's, there was a lot of disappointment among fans we didn't get to see Anatar, um, mm. Sauron taking mm -hmm. on his, his hair form, although they did have a, a lot of fun playing with us, who, you know, with these mysterious new characters, and who could they be, and part yeah. of Sauron. Halbrand, um, king of the Southlands. My question is, do you think there's, is it too late for them to insert to bring Anatar into it in a way because they haven't in the movie the series anyways they right. haven't made any of the other rings of power um, and it's you know if there is how would you write that, that yeah good question so the question uh, Anatar in the second age he comes to Celebrimbor and teaches him the craft of creating the, the three rings and the rings of power um, he sort of comes in the form of Halbrand and and I think the reason the show writers the showrunners did that was sort of because there's a very plugged in fan base who we know who Anatar is right and they didn't they didn't want to spoil that for everybody else um, but so they kind of had Halbrand come in and he's like Sauron 
Um, but yes, so at this point in the second age, Sauron can still shift his form. Remember, he's a spiritual being. He's one of the Maiar. He has power. He is not beholden to any one physical form yet. And so he could come to Eregion, where Celebrimbor is, in the fair form of Anatar. He could come in any form he wanted to, right? Anatar is just one form as, I'm a giver of gifts. I was a member of Aule, of the Valar. I know how to craft things. But he could also just take the form of, hey, I'm an elf lord of the Teleri. I was hanging out over there with Thranduil, and hey, let me just come and, like, like there's a lot of different things he could do. It is not until the fall of Numenor where Sauron is, he sort of gets stuck into his physical form. So there are a lot of really deceptive, fair forms that Sauron could take uh, in, in future seasons of the Rings of Power. Yeah, great question. Cool. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, what is the realism or relevance of Gandalf getting cast down into Middle-earth or Sauron getting cast to Middle-earth and Sauron's followers having a bit of mistaken identity? Yeah, you're talking about in the, in the Rings of Power specifically? Yeah. Um, again, I think that's another a little bit of, hey, we want to have a Hobbit and a Gandalf sort of duo, right? Because that works with Lord of the Rings. And so we're going to create, create the Stranger and the Harfoots, and uh, we have these people following him. I, I think the show writers, are, they're still trying to follow formulas that work with Lord of the Rings, but they're trying to twist them a little bit. And so I, I really don't know. Um, you know, the Stranger, is he Gandalf? Is he not? I'm still holding out my fingers that he's, that he's not Gandalf. I hope that he's, that he's somebody else. Um, but... Uh, but if you read in Unfinished Tales about the Istari, okay, the Istari, we know them as the wizards. In one, it says there's five, but in another passage that Tolkien is writing, another draft, it says, of their number, we don't really know, right? And so mostly those Istari came to Middle-earth in the Third Age, but is it possible that others came in the Second Age um, and that Sarnon's followers were probably looking for them? Because remember, they're that same spiritual class of beings, right? They, they have a lot of equivalency about them. Um, is it possible that the Valar sent other helpers, other divine helpers in the second age of Middle Earth? Sure, I think that's open to, uh, I think that's open within the lore. I think there's room for that. Yeah. Anything else? Back there? Just a comment regarding the Silver Ribbon and those who have not read it. Don't expect it to be anything like the Lord of the Rings. Yes. <laughs> there are no hobbits in the Silmarillion. Um, and elves fight against elves, and there's a lot of tragedy and very sadness, and the Silmarillion is not like a novel like Lord of the Rings. Again, the Silmarillion, that's sort of what Tolkien wanted to publish from the very beginning, but he never was able to. His publishers were like, Tolkien, nobody's going to read this. And so he kind of went on and got The Hobbit. When that was going, he kind of read Lord of the Rings, um, published Lord of the Rings, but before he died, he was never able to publish the Silmarillion. And so his son, Christopher, came, and he took the latest drafts, and Christopher Tolkien had to go and fill in a lot of the holes, uh, kind of helped some of the competing drafts that didn't come together. He kind of had to consolidate a lot of that. And so the Silmarillion is not quite like a novel form where you're following one character all throughout. Again, it's five, 6,000 years of history pack, packed into here, right? And so um, if you do read the Silmarillion, don't expect a novel like Lord of the Rings, but try to take it at a, as a high-level epic journey um, of historical significance in Middle Earth. So, yeah, great advice. Thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, over here. <laughs> Tom Bombadil. Um, there's a lot of theories about Tom Bombadil, but uh, the one that I sort of subscribe to is Tolkien would write a lot of things into his works, and he wouldn't explain them. And for him, it was, what is this thing? 
what is the mystery of this idea that just presented itself to me? Originally, he wrote The Hobbit. He, turned, he was grading papers, turned the paper over and said, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And then he said, what's a hobbit? So then he had to keep writing to explore what is a hobbit. So you come to Tom Bombadil and you're like, what is the world? What in the world is Tom Bombadil? I think Tom Bombadil is just one of those mysteries from Tolkien's mind that we're not ever going to know. And you know what? To me, that is the beauty of Middle Earth. There are still mysteries that we're never going to know. So when we die in 100 years, 200 years, we can go talk to Tolkien and we can say, Tolkien, what the heck were you thinking with Tom Bombadil? <laughs> Mary Don Dillo, 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 you know, whatever. Okay, awesome, thank you. Uh, I, think, I think that's time. I think that's time. That's time. All right, well, thank you, everyone. Have a great uh, rest of the My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.